Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. And today we have the absolute pleasure of welcoming Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, many-time best-selling author, and expert on the science of effective productivity, Charles Duhigg, to the show. Charles is the author of The Power of Habit, Why We Do What We Do in Life and Business, and Smarter, Faster, Better, The Transformative Power of Real Productivity. He was a reporter at the New York Times for over a decade and was part of a team that won a Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting in 2013. He's written for The New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, and The Atlantic, and appeared on This American Life, NPR, and a host of other shows you've probably heard of. He's also the host of How To with Charles Duhigg, a wonderful podcast from Slate, which takes on its listeners' toughest problems and explains how we can do everything from performing under pressure to overcoming anxiety. So Charles, again, thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. I'm good. Well, great. So we're really looking forward to this. There are a bunch of other directions that we could go. But I'd like to start with your experience. Uh, You were a reporter for many years. You were extremely successful inside of it, I think it's fair to say. Uh, What caused you to take a turn into writing about habits and studying the science of productivity? Um, Well, as a reporter at at the LA Times and the New York Times and now at the New Yorker, Um, I always knew that I wanted to write books. You know, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun to write books and it's a way of sort of writing things that have a life beyond, beyond what an article might have. And then in addition to that, you know, I needed to, to somehow um, support my family and buy a house. And so (laughs) I can relate. Yeah. That makes plenty of sense. Um, So inside of all of this material, Charles, you've done so much learning about habit and productivity. And if I had to pick a book out of a lineup that is probably the most read book by our audience, maybe next to some of Rick's, you know, um, The Power of Habit would probably be that book. In all of this work that you did, all of this research, what are the things that really stuck for you? How did your personal behavior change as a result of working inside of this material? Well, I think the biggest thing is just this kind of, this real solid understanding and belief that basically any behavior can be changed, right? And, 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 and I think that this comes through not only from the science, but also from the stories that I, that I heard when I was reporting the book, but even more so from stories I've heard from people who have read the book and have been kind enough to email me. I mean, there's just, you know, people send me these emails that are so beautiful where they talk about the fact that they, you know, had problems with alcohol for decades and then they managed to change their lives and never have another drink Mm -hmm. or, or even, you know, other habits that on the face of them seem less damaging, but we know are as challenging, not, you know, having trouble with their anger, uh, sort of having ruminating on thoughts that they wish that they didn't have, being angry. I think people people have this amazing capacity to change. And and we know that in theory, but in practice, it's oftentimes easy to forget that. And so I think that's been the biggest thing for me is just being awed again and again by how forcefully people can take can take control of their own lives and their own destiny and really make the changes that they they feel like they need to succeed. So Charles, we we hope to explore both your best-selling books. And I'd like to just focus first, though, on the power of habit and have you give us, you know, the 411, as it were, uh, about what can people do to stop doing certain things and start doing other things, uh, if, particularly for people not that familiar with your material. So let's suppose that someone says, okay, I want to start exercising and I want to stop eating so many sweets. 
What's the fundamental process in terms of the the habit loop, as it were, that someone can draw upon, um, you know, to to do those things? So, so the first and most important thing is to recognize that habits have a basic structure, right? And we tend to think of habits as one thing, a, a behavior, <clears throat> but that's not exactly right. It, habits are actually three things. So there's a cue, which is like a trigger for an automatic behavior to start, and then a routine, which is the behavior itself, and then finally a reward. And that reward is really important because that's how your brain learns to encode this particular chunk of um, cue routine reward into, a, into an automatic thing, something that just happens almost without our thinking about it. And once you have started to recognize those cues and those rewards, once you've learned how to diagnose them, that's when you really gain power over your behaviors. Because if I say to you, or if you say to me, look, I want to extinguish eating sweets, or I just want to start running in the morning. The first thing I'm going to say is, it's really hard to extinguish a habit, right? It's something that provides a reward that your brain has come to expect and rely upon. And unless you substitute it with something else that delivers a similar reward, you're going to have that craving for that habit. And if, if you want to start running, that's great. But, but let's think about how most people start you know, an exercise routine. They, they wake up one morning and they go for a run and they come back and now suddenly they're late to take their kids to school. So they're like, rush through the shower and then they jump in the car and they're anxious about getting their kids to school on time. Then eventually they get to their desk and they're just so relieved to be at work and they're all sweaty. They've basically punished themselves for exercising, right? Your brain says, look, I don't want to do that again. Last time I did it, I got all sweaty and anxious. <laughs> and I think the thing is that when people learn a, that habits have this structure, and B, how to recognize and diagnose the cues and rewards in their own lives, that's when they gain power over changing their own habits or building new habits. And, and it's the first important step is just this mind shift to understand that habits aren't mysterious. They're not something that grow out of nowhere. They're things that occur, uh, sort of obey basic rules about human behavior. And once you know those rules, you have power over them. So what are the key rules? Let's say I want to start exercising more, which I do. All right, what should I do? Okay, so the first thing you got to do is you got to figure out a cue for that exercise. And most cues fall into one of five categories, right? It's usually a time of day, a particular place, a certain emotion, the presence of certain other people, or a preceding behavior that has become ritualized. So let's say, let's say, and you want as many cues as you can get. So let's say you decide, okay, look, every Wednesday, I'm going to go to the gym at six o'clock. Okay. So it's a time of day. I'm going to drive there after work. It's a certain place. I'm going to the same gym and even more. So I'm going to ask my friend Bill to meet me at the gym at six o'clock on a Wednesday night. It's the presence of certain other people. Then I've set up all these cues to try and make this behavior habitual. So then you go and let's say you, uh, you work out for 15 minutes, right? I mean, not a very long workout, but that's fine. It's the first time. What you need to do immediately afterwards is you need to give yourself some reward. What you shouldn't do is say, oh man, I only worked out for 15 minutes. Like what, a bag of cookies? <laughs> well, but something you could do is give yourself a smoothie, right? Cookies are like a little, you know, there's some cognitive dissonance there. I went and I worked out. Now I'm going to reward myself with like a, a juice or a, a, you know, a smoothie, or I'm going to take a nice long shower, or I'm going to keep track of this in my, like, you know, my little pocket calendar. And I'm going to give myself a smiley face on this day to, to reward myself for doing a good job at the gym. Do all of them, 
all of the above. You want to give yourself as many rewards as possible so your brain latches onto something. Now, what you should not do is you should not feel bad for having that smoothie or taking a shower, or you shouldn't feel bad because you only spent 15 minutes. What you're starting to do is you're starting to create the scaffolding, those cues and rewards that are going to make exercise more likely. Mm. And over time, what's going to happen is it's going to get easier and easier to exercise. You're going to exercise for longer and longer periods of time. And more importantly, that scaffolding is going to come into more and more play. Eventually, you're not going to actually need to drink a smoothie. You're going to work out for mm. 45 minutes. Your brain is going to learn that when you work out, you get these endorphins and these endocannabinoids that allow you to sort of feel, feel good about the exercise that you're doing. And and as a result, you're going to have this reward sensation that makes mm. exercise easier and easier and easier. That makes a ton of sense, Charles. And one of the things that really appeals to me about this territory in general is that it's about the systemization of behavior of different kinds, right? So a lot of in your work and in your writing, what you've really looked at is the systemization on kind of a, um, a workplace side, a corporate side of behavior, and then also the systemization of internal behaviors like going to the gym. Uh, on this podcast in general, we tend to look more at kind of internal mental strengths. And some of those can absolutely be systemized, but sometimes that structure of like a cue, a routine, and a reward is a little bit fuzzier in nature. Like what's my cue to, I don't know, be nicer to other people or to be more mindful or to be more courageous or whatever it might be. Or to be. develop um, more positive mood or a greater sense of self-worth. Yeah, whatever it might be. And in your work here, obviously those external changes suggest some kind of internal change. But what have you seen as kind of the connection between those two things, the internal and the external? And do you think that we change those internal behaviors in a similar way to how we change the external ones? I mean, I think you can. I think it's an important distinction, which is that, hmm. you know, what you're talking about sort of when you're deliberately being mindful or when you're saying, like, I want to intervene and change my mood state. That's not necessarily a habit, right? And, yeah. and not everything is habits. When you're making sure. a deliberate action, you're, you're specifically not engaging in habitual behavior. Mm. That being said, we know that a lot of emotional changes um, are related to habits. And we know that most of the habits we have in our lives and about 40 to 45% of what we do every day is a habit. Most of, the men, most of those habits are mental habits, right? They're things that happen within, um, within our heads. Um, whether we're reacting angrily or happily, whether we're finding solace or anxiety from certain events. And so I think that one of the things that happens is that over time, all rewards become internal rewards, either internal phase changes when we're looking at brain chemistry or internal events where it's a deliberate act and we are sort of deciding that something should be rewarding um, and the, the fact that we've decided it should be rewarding makes it rewarding, right? The reward salience changes as a, as a result of our decision-making. And I think what's important about that is that's great, and it's something to aspire to. It's a lot easier to deal with external rewards at first. Right. Oftentimes, if you're trying to change a behavior or create a new behavior, you need an external reward in order to allow you to focus on the reward. Can I ask you... For a specific example here of an internal condition that many people report is problematic for them, leads to suffering and so forth, excessive self-criticism. So it is a behavior. It's an internally directed behavior. How would you apply your approach to someone who, say, wants to be 
uh, much less self-critical while steeping their keep while still keeping their eye on the ball and not making big mistakes in life. Well, so I think the first question you have to ask is what reward is that providing to you? Right when someone is is internally self-critical, the avoidance of the possibility of making a mistake. Yeah, that could probably that that, that very possibly could be it. Right, I, I feel like I'm more vigilant because I'm internally self-critical. I've yeah. learned in the past words off anxiety. Yeah, or, or perhaps it wards off anxiety, which is a little bit of a different thing, right? Um, perhaps it's that um, I actually, if, I, if I'm not self-critical, I'm worried that others will be critical and I, I hate feeling stupid more than I hate criticizing yep. myself. This is great, Charles. I wanted to put you on the spot with this. I'm a therapist, so of course, this is the kind of stuff I think about. I mean, but, and, and I think the point is that there, there's, a, there's a myriad of potential rewards there, right? Or it could simply be comforting. It could actually be that like I've gotten into this habit of self-criticism and it feels comforting to me to engage in a behavior that I've engaged in before. It may also feel like I'm almost superstitious, like I'm warding off yeah. the worst case scenario by envisioning the worst case scenario. I mean, we've all experienced various aspects of this. I, I think the thing is, unless you know what reward that behavior is providing, you don't know mm. how to change the habit. That's mm. great. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it is different from person to person. And the way, you know, you're, as a therapist, I, I'd be curious if you have a different perspective on this. The researchers I've spoken to, they say like the best way to figure out what reward is driving that behavior is just to conduct experiments. If instead of being self-critical, if I suspect that I'm doing it for reasons of, um, of you know, trying to envision the worst case scenario because I protect against it, what if I sit down and I write the actual worst case scenario, if I write it down on a piece of paper, does that relieve my need for self-criticism? If the answer is yes, then maybe it's like suggested what is actually, what reward is driving that? Right. The tricky thing, of course, uh, is that a lot of um, behaviors, uh, both internally directed and externally directed, that arose due to the linkage with reward have taken on a life of their own. And they're just simply repetitive processes that are kind of decoupled from the function they used to serve. Maybe someone developed self-criticism in their childhood and 20s because they grew up in a really critical environment. I did, actually. And so to avoid any possibility of external criticism, we internalize internal self-criticism to keep us on the straight and narrow. But then, you know, 30 years later, say, uh, I don't really need to keep pleasing my parents, but still that habit, you know, as it were, internally is occurring. So that's, that's really interesting, isn't it? You know, when uh, the behavior is not any longer linked clearly to a reward and yet is problematic for a person. But let's say back in the day, the reward was preventing external criticism by being really hard on myself internally. How would someone like me change this uh, as a habit these days and become more self-accepting, more self-compassionate, and less self-critical? Well, I think, I think the number one thing would be not to say, I'm just going to extinguish this behavior, right? Because into a vacuum, into a vacuum, some other behavior has to flow. Excellent. Yeah. And then I think the next thing, and again, I'd be curious if this lines up with your clinical practice, is to try and find something that is more positive. Mm-hmm. One of the things we know is that habits are strong, but they're relatively delicate. And so mm -hmm. when you change that environment, when you start fiddling with the gears on, inside your head, you have this opportunity to kind of run an experiment and say, okay, if I'm not self-critical this time, is someone else necessarily going to criticize me? Mm -hmm. and, and to say, instead of being self-critical, you got to do something else. 
you must have some alternative behavior. I mean, this is within the literature that's often referred to as simplified habit reversal therapy, which says you don't simply extinguish a habit. You find some new behavior to take the place of that, of that old behavior, because otherwise you're just mm-hmm. going to revert to the, to what you did before. So maybe, maybe what you do is you, instead of being self-critical, you like sit down and you force yourself to lavish praise on yourself. <laughs> and, and, and by the time, you know, you know, if you do it three or four times and the world hasn't ended, you, your brain starts to realize like, I actually don't have to be so self-critical. Yeah. Everything's not going to fall apart. Yeah, no, I think that's a great piece of advice and an interesting way to kind of approach our own psychology as a, uh, from kind of the perspective of running tests of various kinds. It's a really useful way to think about it. And I think what's important, like when you think about it, like oftentimes when people say they want to make a change, they talk about removing something. Mm-hmm. I want to lose weight. I'm going to eat less. What really works much better, as you guys know, is to say, I want to lose weight. I'm going to eat something different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you run an experiment, you'd never replace the activity with a null. You don't say, I tested A, now I need to do nothing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why this experimental mindset is so important is because first of all, it encourages you to find an alternative behavior instead of simply trying to extinguish an old behavior. Secondarily, it also says, look, if the experiment doesn't work, that's okay. Like if all your experiments are successful, you're a lousy scientist. (laughs) Scientists are supposed to have some failed results to know that they are actually testing things worth testing. I want to kind of tack in that direction of smarter, faster, better and organizational development and kind of practice inside of it in general. Um, Because you wrote a absolutely fascinating piece about a year ago for the New York Times magazine titled Wealthy, Successful, and Miserable. And in it, you basically looked at... Is that the converse of smarter, faster, better? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, where you basically, uh, to paraphrase the beginning of it, you went to a school reunion for Harvard Business, obviously a lot of very successful people in there. And what you kind of found is a lot of people who were A, making a lot of money, and B, not feeling particularly great about it. Um, And just in your work life in general, you've had the opportunity to interact with so many people in the business world who were, by any definition, radically successful. And that doesn't always line up with fulfillment in life. And I think that it's kind of this haunting reflection to a certain extent that we're talking about productivity and habit and effectiveness out in the world, but that doesn't always lead to fulfillment or happiness or whatever kind of those uh, eudaimonic aspirations are that people might have. And for starters, I I was kind of just wondering your reflection on that. Um, But to narrow in maybe a little bit more, what are some of the things that you've seen in the people who, let's say, did wind up happy and successful that were different on a trait level from those who maybe didn't? It's a really good question. Um, I mean, I I think that the the most obvious ones are probably the most intuitive, which is that people who had, who had sought sort of just financial gain tended to be much less satisfied than those who had mm-hmm. found something that they were passionate about. And I use that word passion really carefully because I think that many times when we talk about passion, that people think that it has to be like, you know, you, you go into education because you're passionate about kids or you go into you know, renewable energy because you're passionate about the environment. Oftentimes people go into very boring industries and they remain passionate because they're passionate, not necessarily about the industry, but they're passionate about their job, right? They're doing HR in like the most boring company on earth, but they love HR. They love helping people do their best work. 
Sometimes some people that I know um, work for companies and they basically dislike other people intensely. They dislike most <laughs> of humanity intensely, but they really like technology. And so they mm. make for, for being a great venture capitalist because they're just so passionate about learning about what the next technology is going to be and trying to figure out the puzzle behind it. And so I think that that's the first order thing is that people who, people who basically can say, I'm interested in this activity beyond the fact that I get paid for it, that mm. seems to be a pretty good first indicator of the direction you should move. But secondarily, I mean, we know a lot about what actually creates a sense of fulfillment or psychological well-being, right? Being able to do things with people whom you enjoy spending time around, whom you respect and whom you think are smart in some way, tends mm. to increase our quality of life. Um, being in a field where you get surprised or feel a sense of awe sometimes in, in, in your environment, that has a big, that has a big influence on whether you end up being satisfied and continue mm. to be curious about that, that industry. And so I think, I don't think any of them are particularly surprising. I think it's just, um, it's just hard because I think most people say like, look, it would be great to be able to do the thing that I love, but I'm not going to make any money at it. And that might be true. <laughs> I can't criticize people for making pragmatic choices. But I will say that even within the constraints of I need to get paid for what I'm doing, it seems like you're far better off than saying within, the, within that one parameter, can I find something that actually just seems surprising and awe-inspiring occasionally and fun about this thing? And then, and then sort of leaning into that. Mm. It strikes me that feeling effective in the pursuit of personally important goals, which is a way of defining, let's say, productivity, feeling effective in the pursuit of those goals strikes me as necessary in most people's case for well-being, but it's not sufficient. And I've, that's so striking. You're in, in a way ironic that your works a lot about, you know, developing personal effectiveness really broadly. Um, and yet, in many environments where people have taken personal effectiveness to the nth degree, these are top one percenters, captains of industry and so forth. And yet clearly personal effectiveness in any kind of domain is not enough it has to be for long, something else. Yeah, yeah. long-term well-being. What do you think about that? Well, I think that's right. You know, so Google did this big study a couple of years ago that I wrote about in Smarter, Faster, Better called Project Aristotle. And they were basically trying to figure out why some teams are more effective than others. And they found that there's these five things that make a team um, work really well. And, and one of them is what you just said, is, is meaning, right? Believing that the, the work that you do is important to other people. And then a second one that sort of ties into what you just said is impact, that you need to believe that the work that you are doing will have some impact on at least someone's life and hopefully the world. But then there are these other things that you also need. You also need structure and clarity, right? You need to know what your job is and you need to have an understanding of how your job fits into to the other jobs that are going on around you. You also need dependability. You need basically people around you who you think you can count on to at least do their jobs and, and hopefully act like nice, normal people. And then the most important thing is you need psychological safety. You need to have the ability to take risks, right? Yeah. Taking risks is at the core of learning. And I think if you have those five things, I'm not saying that you're necessarily going to have a job 
that you do find meaningful. Mm. But if you have those five things, you're going to be much, much more likely to have a job that's meaningful mm. and hopefully be able to find ways to be personally effective inside that job. Mm-hmm. That's a great list of uh, list of key things to look for when you're on that search for fulfillment. Absolutely. One of the things I just passing comment that I've reflected on in reading your work is how uh, there's a kind of different sort of loop in which we improve our habits, let's say, internally, which then leads to an external impact on our environment, including our relationships, our work life the planet even, which then feeds back and promotes our well-being and makes it maybe easier next time to shift into another good habit in an upward sort of spiral. And uh, one of the things that uh, to digress here as we move toward an end is that comes through your writing is your voice, which people can hear it even in this podcast. I think of it as like an eager, curious kid in a lot of ways, right? Who is very exploratory and you you write in some ways from your own personal background in your, in your work. So I wondered if we could ask you another question we ask people routinely. If you were to go back to yourself, I'll, I'll just pick my own nadir of well-being, junior high school, the pit. Uh, <laughs> if you were to go back to yourself as a younger person, you know, maybe an adolescence, and you could kind of communicate some things to your younger version back in the time machine, as it were, what would you want to say to yourself way back when that would have been so useful for you to have heard back then? It's a really good question. And I, I think about this a lot. So I'll, I'll give you two answers, mm-hmm. one of which I'm not certain is true. Mm. So the first thing I would tell myself that I would, that I think is true is to say like, you should always just take more risks Mm. and you should take slow risks, right? That like, Mm. I think the younger you are, the more it feels like you need to move fast and you have to, you have to be a success early. And like what I found is exactly the opposite that like, basically the people who are successful are the ones who are willing to like, kind of like spend a lot of time being unsuccessful. Mm. That, so taking more risks and taking slow risks. The other thing I would tell myself, and I'm not sure that this is the right thing to say, is make choices assuming that the best case scenario is invariably going to come true. But hmm. it will come true in the most pragmatic way possible. So like when I was a kid, I, I, I wanted to go into politics. And, hmm. and in fact, when I was in, at Harvard Business School, and I decided to become a journalist. I was deciding between going back to New Mexico where I was from and going into politics or going into journalism. And I decided to go into journalism. I, th- I think it was a good choice for me. Um, but part of the reason why is because I, I, I worried that if I didn't win, if I went back and I ran for office and I didn't win, that I would be kind of miserable in New Mexico. Because I'd had a friend who had run and he hadn't won and he seemed kind of miserable. <laughs> and so I think that the one mistake I made there was that you're better off making mistakes if you assume that you are going to be successful over time with this one caveat that assume that success is real and therefore all success has costs, right? Because Mm. once you get elected, for instance, to the house of representative, then you have to be in the house of representatives (laughs) or once you're successful as a politician, you have to spend all of your time being a politician and, and, And I think what I was really saying was I don't really want to spend every weekend campaigning and I don't want to spend all of my time asking people for money Mm. and, and even being a successful, you know, author and journalist, there's still so much of it. That's hard. 
right? It's like, like I'm trying to work on a piece right now and it's miserable forcing myself to like read all these old clips and, and come up with a call list. Every, everything is hard. So I think that the one thing I would say to myself is, and to others is make decisions assuming you are going to succeed, that your success is going to be wildly beyond your dreams. But then you actually have to live with that success, right? It's, it's not that you like write a book and you spend the rest of your life being the person who once wrote one book. Mm-hmm. It's that you write a book and then you spend the rest of your life writing more books. <laughs> and it's just as hard after a successful book as it is for the first time. Mm. That's a wonderful reflection, Charles. Truly, we've never gotten an answer that was anything like that. And uh, I think it's a, it's a, it's a great note, a great, um, I'm trying to find the right way to put this, like a, a great encouragement and a great warning at the same time, <laughs> which given the phase of my life that I'm in, I really appreciate. And again, you know, I know we have to get you out of there here. So uh, thanks so much for taking the time to do this with us. Thank today. you. I really appreciate you guys having me on. So, today we had the pleasure of speaking with Charles Duhigg. We began by talking about habit, and particularly how to build good habits and replace problematic ones. Charles broke down the structure of habits into a habit loop that consists of three key steps, a cue, a routine, and then a reward. When we're working with challenging habits, we can keep the cue and the reward and replace the routine that lies in the middle. If our goal is to build a new good habit, then the most effective way to do so is to cue ourselves into it, and then to give ourselves some kind of reward at the end. But one of the things that Charles kept coming back to is the idea that what we often give ourselves, self-criticism, is extremely problematic. Any kind of good change in behavior should be met with a commensurate good reward, even if that good change was really quite small. Or even if that good change activated some material inside of us, that led to additional self-criticism. The example he gave was going to a gym, working out for 20 minutes, and then getting really self-critical because, wow, I only worked out for 20 minutes. If that self-criticism, a negative reward, were replaced with some kind of positive reward, establishing that habit would be so much easier. We then spent some time talking about the difference between active habits out in the world, things like establishing a workout regimen, or becoming more consistent with your sleep cycle, versus internal habits, like being kinder to others. Charles spoke to some of the similarities and differences between the two, and suggested how people could run routines of different kinds in order to figure out what the rewards were that they were getting from their problematic internal habits, like, for instance, self-criticism. Rick and Charles had a really interesting conversation about that, And for me personally, I hadn't really thought of these negative behaviors like self-criticism as something that we receive a reward from. But by identifying what that reward is, it can give us a bit of a blueprint toward changing the underlying behavior. We then went into a conversation that looked at how we can be productive and effective and skillful out in the world and yet still not feel happy or satisfied internally. Charles has had the opportunity to be around a lot of extremely successful people in the business world, and he gave some suggestions as to what seemed to him to be some of the key differences between people who were ultimately fulfilled by their work and those who were not. If you'd like to hear more from Charles, I'd encourage you to check out How To with Charles Duhigg, which is the podcast that he has with Slate. 
If you're interested in learning some more, I've included a link to it in the description of today's podcast. I'd also like to remind you about our new Patreon account, which we're just now launching. If you'd like to learn more about it, you can follow the link in the description of today's episode or go to patreon.com backslash beingwellpodcast. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. So until next time, thanks for listening.